Thanks to all our musicians, as always, for the work that you put in and serving us so well. Appreciate that very much. Well, you can open your Bibles to Titus, the book of Titus. If you don't have one this morning, there should be one on the pew in front of you, and you can feel free to take that with you. Titus chapter 2. Now, here at Woodhaven right now, we have at least uh, two engaged couples. I will not point them out so as to not embarrass them, but uh, we have two engaged couples that are regularly attending, and I know we have uh, at least one other couple that's connected through family members of the church. Uh, They were here last week. And engagement is a time of life unlike any other time of life. Um, It's normally fairly short. And it's a time of living in between. It's a time of living in the middle. You have a ring, you have a promise, you have a date coming, and there's a lot to do in the meantime. And everything in your life is directed toward that date coming and toward the things that you have to accomplish to get ready for that date. Uh, Bethany and I were engaged in May of 2004 and married in October of the same year. So she only had about five months to plan the wedding, and I surprised her with the ring. She had no idea that it was coming the day before graduation of college when we both graduated. Uh, She thought, well, if we're still together by the fall, (laughs) then maybe we'll get engaged then or maybe in the winter. And I Gave her the ring in May of that year, and so when I asked her to marry me, everything about the summer months of 2004 changed for both of us, but for her in particular. Uh, She was planning to work, and she still did work, but now she had a whole host of other responsibilities that she had to accomplish, and I participated as much as I humanly could, uh, you know, with my uh, inability to get those things done. She had new responsibilities, new hopes, new fears, um, new tasks that were there, and it was a a busy summer. And so when you're engaged, you're looking back all the time to that moment of receiving the ring, and that moment of receiving the ring then puts this date in front of you that now you're gearing everything toward, and so you're living in the middle of those two moments. That's what life is like during that time. Now, this morning, I want us all to theologically adjust the way we view the time period that we're living in right now, all of our lives. Every moment that you live, you are living as if you're engaged. You are living in between. You're living in the middle between something that happened and something that is going to happen. If you're in Titus, look at verse chapter 2 and verse 12. I'll read the whole verse to give you a little bit of context, but the, the very end of the verse, that little phrase there at the end of the verse is what I want to focus on at the beginning here. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And Paul doesn't just mean the time period that you're living in now, the present. That's That's not all that he means by that phrase. That phrase has a lot of theological weight behind it when he uses it. 
And what he's saying here is he wants you to know you are living in the middle between something that you should be looking back to that has already happened and something that you're looking ahead to. The present age is defined by these two moments. What are those two moments? Well, he tells us one in verse 11 and one in verse 13. In those two moments, he uses the word appear or variation of that word to define them. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. So there's the first moment, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Now look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing. So there's one appearance that has happened, and there's another appearing that is going to happen. And life right now is defined by those two appearings, and it's called the present age. The time in the middle. And so in this passage, Paul is saying, your life, my life, the way that you live your lifestyle now is determined by what has happened and what is going to happen. One appearing and the next appearing. And he's making that doctrinal theological point here. Why? Why is he emphasizing that here? Well, I think it's been three weeks ago now, we were in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you look back to the beginning of that, verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he's telling Titus, you need to train the churches that you're working in to live in a way that is fitting for sound doctrine. It matches the doctrine that you say you believe or that you do believe. And then in verses 2 through 10, he goes on to explain what that looks like. Here's the lifestyle that is determined by the doctrine that you say you believe. Now he gets to verse 11 and he, look at the beginning of verse 11, and you see that little word for there. And he uses that word because he's saying, What I'm about to tell you is the theology. This is the doctrine that lies behind the lifestyle here. So this is what theologically determines the way that you're supposed to live. It gives it significance. And that doctrine, that theology is based on these two appearings. In verse 11 and verse 13, everything else fits in the middle of those. And so with all of that in mind, with the context of verses 11 through 15 this morning, we're going to see two reasons to put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine while living in the present age. So two reasons to put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine while living in the present age. And we're still talking about fitting with sound doctrine because really chapter 2, the whole thing, verses 1 to 15, is one message to these people. Live what is fitting with sound doctrine. Here's what is fitting with sound doctrine. And then in verse 11 through 15, here's the sound doctrine. And so he actually ends with this. Most of the time in Paul, he starts with the theology and then he he gives you the implications of it. But here he actually reverses it and gives you the theology after he gives you the implications. And make no mistake, this passage still has plenty of implications in it and application for our lives. But that's what he's doing here. Two reasons. He's giving you the motivation to put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine. And these are based on these two appearings. First, Christ's first appearing brought grace. This is a reason that you should put, that I should put on a lifestyle that fits with sound doctrine. And the first appearing here is described as the arrival of God's grace. Look at verse 11. For... The grace of God has 
appeared. And you can see there, it describes this appearing as the grace of God coming. And really, this whole passage is permeated by God's grace. The whole thing is, the foundation of it is God's grace. So we need to slow down for a minute. We need to think carefully about what we mean when we talk about God's grace. That is a word we use often, and we should. Paul begins every one of his letters by saying grace to you. That's the way he greets the believers. So grace is a very common Christian word. It's common for us. You read it often. You you use it often, probably in your life. We know God is gracious, but what does it mean that God is gracious? Well, I think there's a tendency for us to think of grace as something that is sentimental. We tend to think of God is gracious, and we think that 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 means he's gracious in the same way that a really nice teacher is gracious, who sort of lets you turn in your homework a few days late. She's really kind in that way. Or maybe hands out candy to everyone in her elementary school class just because she's nice like that. And so we tend to think of God in that way, sort of a sentimental way, sort of a throwback to elementary school when you had that one really sweet teacher. And to properly understand God's grace, you have to put grace within context, and you have to understand two realities. Grace, first of all, the first reality is that grace is God's response to sin. That's what grace is. It's his response to sin. Now, when we think about God's character, one of the primary attributes of God is his goodness. God is good in who he is. And his goodness is expressed or worked out in certain ways. Grace is one of the ways that God's goodness is worked out. And grace is the way God's goodness is worked out to sinful people. Grace comes to sinful people. If Adam and Eve would not have sinned in the garden, obviously God would still be good. But you and I would not know his grace in the same way that we do now. We know his grace because grace is a response. It's God's goodness demonstrated to sinful people. So that's the first reality that you have to understand. God's grace is his goodness demonstrated to sinful people. Now, when we receive God's grace, he doesn't just sort of look past the sin that those people have. Grace always comes to us. The way in which sinful people receive God's grace is always tied to sacrifice and atonement. It always comes to us in concert with his justice. God doesn't just wink at sin and overlook it. The whole Bible teaches us that. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They sin. They come under the judgment of God. They try to cover themselves and get rid of their shame. And what does God do? He comes to them in grace and provides a better covering for them. But how does he do that? Through the sacrifice and the death, the bloody death of an animal, he gives them animal skins to cover themselves. Think about how God's grace comes to Israel in the Old Testament. They're graciously, even though they're sinful, and they show that over and over again, they are graciously invited into God's presence in the tabernacle to worship him. But how are they to approach him in the Old Testament? 
They have to come to him through blood sacrifice. That is how God's grace is demonstrated. It requires atonement and sacrifice. And you know where that ends up. It ends up with the full and final and definitive demonstration of God's grace. The very reason that the incarnation is called the grace of God here is because Jesus Christ comes as the perfect Passover lamb, the sacrifice, sheds his blood, and now we receive the grace of God through that sacrifice. So grace comes to us through sacrifice because we are sinful people. Listen to how one author described this. I thought this was really good. It is because the world is not as it should be that God is gracious. It is because after the fall, we are in rebellion against him because of our sinful nature that he acts in the face of the rebellion. It is because we have chosen death that he sends his son to die in our place. Grace is both divine attitude and divine action, and grace reveals the tragic circumstances into which the human race has fallen. And it's through God's grace to people in desperate need of salvation that salvation comes. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace brings salvation because we're in need of salvation. Now, this phrase here, his grace brings salvation for all people. He's not saying here that all people will be saved. Paul's not a universalist here. To understand what he means when he says all people that salvation comes to, you have to think back to our passage from a couple weeks ago, verses 1 through 10. All people are described there through the various functions in their life. They're older men, older women, younger men, younger women. There's bond servants. And so what Paul is saying here is that God's salvation has come to all sorts of people, to all different kinds of people. It does not discriminate. It doesn't come to men and not women. It does come to bond servants or slaves. God's grace is demonstrated to people from every walk of life through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But God's grace to us, demonstrated in Christ and given to us in Christ, does not stop by God simply pulling us out of the rushing water and saving us from death. That's not where God's grace stops. It goes far beyond that. God's grace teaches and trains us how to live appropriately in the time period we're living in now. That's the result. Look at verse 12. Let me just read verse 11 into verse 12 to give you some context. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace trains us, teaches us how to live. We don't often think of God's grace as teaching or instructing or disciplining us in how to live life in the present age. So how exactly does God's grace train us? How should God's grace be training you in your walk with him? Well, if you have been enslaved to sin, if you have been enslaved, then you are free from that slavery. That freedom, the grace that brought about that reality, becomes the defining feature of your life. If you were a slave and now you're free, you define yourself by that grace, by that freedom. 
That becomes who you are. The grace that brings about our salvation now shapes everything about our lives because it becomes our identity. Without that grace, you and I are still enslaved to sin. We're not saved. Israel was made to remember the Passover every year, right? They celebrated the Passover, and they were to remember what God had done for them as a nation, the salvation that he brought to them. They were to do that every year. Notice how the the Ten Commandments start in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why does God start the Ten Commandments that way? Because they were to remember his grace, and then that would shape the way they lived. It would train them to live appropriately and to live as liberated people who were free from slavery and who were now given to walk as his people. This grace trains us in the present age specifically. Look at verse 12 again. It trains us. Because of our new identity, because we've been liberated, it trains us to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and then to live positively in these ways. So renounce certain ways of living and develop other ways of living. He tells us we're to renounce two different things, ungodliness and and worldly passions. Ungodliness is a life that is lived as if God isn't there. It's a life that is lived without God, without his grace. It would be a life that is lived without a recognition that God has been gracious to me. We're to renounce that way of living. We are to make the connection between God's grace and daily life and make it explicit. But we're also to renounce worldly passions. These are passions that characterize worldly people. People that live without God, without an idea of his grace, have certain desires and certain passions that drive them. And they drive them toward a particular vision of what life is all about. And so they desire to be this sort of person and their passions drive them in that direction. And grace teaches us to renounce those passions. To renounce the passions which forget and neglect God and his grace. And grace teaches us to renounce those things because those are the very passions that got us into slavery in the first place. And so when you're free from slavery, you don't go back to it. You don't turn around and go back to Egypt and ask to be put back under slavery. Instead, the grace that you've received in liberation trains you to live a new lifestyle in a different way. And that different way is also described in verse 12. We are to live three things, three characteristics, self-controlled, upright, and godly. First of all, self-control. This is the same characteristic that's used over and over again in verses 1 to 10. You can go back and look at it on your own time, but it's used over and over again. And self-control is talking about my own personal integrity and way of living, my character. Second, we're to live upright. This is talking about living righteously or a just way with other people. It's talking about interpersonal relationships. Grace teaches me to be self-controlled personally, and then it teaches me to live among others in a way that is righteous and is just. Finally, it teaches me to live godly. If ungodliness is a way of living 
that doesn't recognize God's influence and impact, that tries to live without him, then godliness would be the opposite of that. It would be living in a way that acknowledges God's grace and to live as if God is real and very involved in our daily lives. His grace teaches us that. So, to summarize, grace teaches us to develop personal character, to be righteous and just, to deal appropriately with other people, and then it also teaches us to live rightly related to God. Grace impacts every area of your life and my life. And God's grace demonstrated in Jesus Christ is the great reality of your and my life in this present age. He ends here by saying this, all of this teaches us to live in the present age. This is the defining reality of life, God's grace. It should be for us as believers. Trying to live without an acknowledgement of God's grace is a little bit like trying to make sense of life while denying gravity. Grasping the reality of gravity makes sense of every moment. You know why things work the way they do. You can explain to your children that if you jump off of that counter, you will fall down. And they know that intuitively by their experience. And trying to deny that we have received grace through Jesus Christ or trying to deny that we need grace because of our sinfulness is a little bit like trying to deny that gravity exists and influences everything we do. And the crazy thing about sin is sin makes us stupid and we try to deny that gravity is there. We try to live as if we're the center and that we can figure everything out on our own and as if we're not really bent and broken by sin and as if we're not really in need of God's grace. And so we need to be retrained. That's what this is all about. It's retraining us to see everything in perspective of God's grace, connected to God's grace. And that means seeing everything with Jesus at the center. I'm a sinner in need of grace, and everything I have is a gift from him. Man, if we really lived like that, that would certainly influence my anxiety. It would influence my complaining. It would influence my fear. I mean, you can go down the line. But if we live that way and let grace train us to see who we are and who God is, man, that would shape everything. And that's what he wants here. Looking back to this reality, this first appearing of Christ, where he comes as a man, and it's a demonstration of God's grace to sinful people, that will change the way we live. But looking ahead during this present age, living in the middle and looking ahead also changes, changes us and shapes us. And this is our second reason to put on a lifestyle that fits, that matches sound doctrine, that's appropriate for what you believe. Christ's first appearing brought grace and Christ's second appearing solidifies hope. Christ's first appearing brought grace, his second appearing brings glory shows and manifests his glory, and that is certainly something to hope in. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is obviously talking about the second coming of Christ, and he describes it here in two ways. We just read them. It's the blessed hope and 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the same event, and he describes it in two ways. It's a blessed hope. It's an exciting hope because the arrival of the glory of Jesus Christ will bring all these different things together. And we talked about this last week on Easter Sunday, that when Christ's body was risen from the dead, and when he returns, you and I will be resurrected to a glorified body. That's one of the things that will happen when he returns, when this event, this blessed hope happens. And so all these different elements of our future come together when Christ returns at this blessed hope. Listen to how Paul describes this in 1 Thessalonians. But we, not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And look, as I read this, look at all the things that he brings together that are going to happen when this event comes in the future. That you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love in verse 17 there, can't see the verse numbers, but it says that when this happens, we will always be with the Lord. That's the hope that Paul is describing here that we are waiting for. That's one of the things that's going to happen at this second appearing. We will see the glory of the Lord. God's glory is the brightness. It's the going public of his character. And all that he is in his holiness and grace and justice and righteousness and power and love, all of that is going to be manifest clearly to us at this second coming. And we will be with him forever to enjoy who he is. And that is something to encourage one another with and to hope in while we live in the middle. It's something to anticipate and to look forward to. And that hope in our Savior, shapes life this week. It changes the way you and I live. Look in verse 13. He calls Jesus our Savior. Again, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. He's talked about the salvation that came in Christ, and he calls him again our Savior here. We saw earlier the grace of God in our salvation doesn't just pull us out of the mud, but it actually trains us. It doesn't only liberate us, he, he frees us and teaches us how to be formed in Christ-likeness. Look at verse 14. Here he goes over the same ground again, how we're to live in the present age in light of this future appearing, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, I want you to notice something I think is fascinating here, the way he describes our salvation. First of all, he says that we are redeemed. What does that language remind you of? We've already talked about Israel in the book of Exodus, but that language very much reminds us of what God did for Israel. Exodus 6.6 6 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Well, it's the same language that is used here in verse 14 to describe our salvation. The Exodus is the prototype of deliverance in the Bible, the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But it doesn't stop there. Notice verse 14, he redeems us. Why? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Literally, this means a chosen people. A special people. Listen to Exodus 19. It's a long passage, but let me read it to you. This is after Israel has come out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, gone through the wilderness, and now they're at Mount Sinai. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, how he redeemed them from slavery. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is God saying? Based on the redemption that I brought to you, now you're going to be my special chosen people. And because of that, you need to live a distinct life. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Israel was redeemed. They were liberated from slavery. And now they were to live in a particular way. They were to demonstrate that reality by obeying God's law, by dwelling with him in his presence, by avoiding idolatry, doing what they were supposed to do. It's the same pattern of language that's given here in verse 14. You and I are redeemed from slavery to sin and brought out of that in order to live a holy lifestyle before God. God's mission in the world is to redeem people from lawlessness and ungodliness, to liberate them from slavery to sin, to call them his own special people who are going to dwell with him and be known by their relationship with him. And then he's going to use those people to be ambassadors for him. Trophies of his grace. Look at the end of verse 14. He's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the little phrase here at the end means they are zealots for good works. You know that word. If you've studied the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, you've heard about the political zealots in, in the Gospels. And these are people who were so committed to God's promise of the land being for Israel and they were so frustrated that Rome was ruling over Israel at that time that they were willing to go to any lengths. They were zealous for Israel's independence. And sometimes they would even resort to violence in order to overcome Rome. 
Now, obviously, our passion doesn't lead us toward violence and disruption, but what it does is lead us toward good works. We are to be people, because we've been redeemed by God's grace, who are excited and passionate about doing good works. And this teaching is supposed to be something that Titus goes back to over and over again. Look at verse 15. Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, kind of put the passage together here. Let me make some application. I'm, I'm wrestling with the implications of this in my own life. Because as I'm studying Titus, it's becoming very clear to me the connection between redemption, between liberation from slavery, and a life that is lived with a passion for good works. Not just personal character development, but actual good works for others and in the world. And so I'm asking myself, what does this look like in my life? Is my life structured in a way where I can do good works in the world? How far does this go? I don't know. I don't know all the answers. But when you read the book of Titus, this whole idea, our our sermon series titled Doctrine Works, is very, very clear. I want to walk you really quickly through this book, and I want to show you how much Paul emphasizes doing good works based on the grace of God in our lives. Chapter 1 and verse 16, he's talking about the false teachers here. You can look back there with me. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The implication here is that knowing God means doing good works, and not knowing God doesn't lead to good works. Chapter 2 and verse 7. Titus is to be a model of good works. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Pretty significant. Chapter 2 and verse 14. We just read this, but let's read it again. Who gave himself for us there to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be, we'll look at this next week. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3 and verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Chapter 3 and verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. These are not legalistic commands to do good works or suffer the wrath of God. He's not telling you you have to do good works in order to earn your spot in heaven one day. These are the commands based on the reality of God's grace. If you are truly redeemed, if you know God's grace to you, a sinful person, then it will train you and it will teach you. Look, it is, it is fitting to live in this way. It makes sense. It's appropriate. It matches for us as those who claim Christ 
to actually live in a way that shows and does good works. God's grace, rightly understood, actually trains us to be people who are enthusiastic about a lifestyle that has good works. There's a ton of ramifications of that truth for us. So let me ask you some questions. Are you aware this morning that you're living in the middle? Have you thought about it this way, where you look back to Christ's first coming and you look forward, and both of those appearing shape life today and what you do this week? Do you consistently look back to God's grace demonstrated in Christ and rest in that and rejoice in that and know the goodness that has been brought to you by God's grace? And then do you let that theological reality, the gospel, do you let that shape the way you live? Does that lead you to renounce the world and embrace a lifestyle of good works for God's honor? Again, this is not a a legalistic call for good works. This is a call to remember God's grace and then let that shape the way you live. I want this morning to be a fresh reminder of the good that has been done to us through the work of Jesus Christ and through his coming again. We're in need of his grace and his grace is available in copious amounts for us through looking back and through looking forward. So let's live there. Let's live in the middle as Paul describes here. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy of these things. We are unworthy of your grace. You have been so kind to us, Lord, not in a sentimental way, not in a a way that overlooks sin, but you have dealt with our sin head on. You have dealt with our sin through violent grace. Your son went to the cross and died on our behalf, even as this says in verse 14, he gave himself for us fully, completely. He gave us your grace. And Father, we need to see this. We need to realize this. I need to realize this. I need to be excited and joyful and just resting in your grace so that I will be trained to do good works. And I pray that that is reality for each one in here today. Even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper now, we ask that you would teach us about your grace as we, as we do these elements, Lord. Thank you for who you are in Christ's name. Amen.